thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. <clears throat> well, as we're preparing for a new year, 2024, I want to just give you a quick glimpse, if I may, um, before we look at this text today. Our theme for next year, for 2024, is going to be together. You know that normally for me, um, I take the month of July as a study leave here at our church and get prepared for the next year. This year was a little bit different for us with our daughter Hannah was diagnosed with cancer right before then, so the July time for us was a little different than normal, but I was still able to spend some time preparing for, for 2024. And so um, this theme is really what came to me in my time of prayer before the Lord. And our biblical context for 2024 is going to be the book of Ephesians. And um, when you look at Ephesians, as best we can tell, whenever you look at Paul's letters, we think Paul authored 13 letters in the New Testament. And scholars typically refer to Paul's letters as occasional letters. What that means is not that he only wrote letters ever so often. That's kind of what we mean when we talk about occasional. It's more of a technical term that means that Paul wrote these letters for certain occasions. There was a reason why he wrote these letters. Ephesians is the least occasional of all of Paul's letters. There's, there's less connection, if you will, to some issue in the church. So it's a much more general letter. And it has made it very endearing um, and enduring over time. So to get ready for that, this week, we're going to ask you to read through the book of Ephesians as we launch our new year together, okay? Then, beginning next Sunday, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to provide for you a devotional guide for the year. Actually, it's going to be broken into the various seasons of the year. And instead of me providing everyone with a daily Bible reading, and I, I want to make sure y'all hear me clearly on this, I'm okay with you reading your Bible every day. <laughs> so let's state that clearly, okay? What we're going to do this year, though, is I'm going to be providing you a weekly passage of Scripture that will connect to what we've done on Sunday morning. And so in the devotional guide, you will have that passage of Scripture explained to you, and we're calling that together in word. We want everybody in the church to spend some time that week reflecting on that particular passage of Scripture. And in your devotional guide, you also are going to get some suggestions from the staff that we're calling together indeed. And that is the application of that biblical text, some suggestions for it in your life. And so looking forward to you uh, seeing that devotional guide They'll be available next Sunday, and we will use them every season of the year during 2024. And also, uh, I'm not going to be limited to preaching from the book of Ephesians for the year. Here's how it's going to work in 2024. The sermon texts are going to come from every section of the Bible. So when you look at the Scripture, the Scripture is organized into these various sections. There's the Torah, which is the book of the law the narrative material in the Old Testament, uh, obviously the prophetic material, the wisdom material. The New Testament has three main sections, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and the Epistles. And so what we're going to do over the course of our eight seasons next year, our seasons at our church is kind of the rhythm and the flow of the life of our church. It's not 
necessarily um, liturgically based, even though it has liturgical connotations. So winter, um, Lent, and Easter, and you know, Easter is a little early this coming year. Ash Wednesday is actually February the 14th. So it's about as early as you can have Easter. Um, and the Lenten Easter season, the spring season, the summer, August, the fall, missions month, November, and then the season of Advent. Those eight seasons, as we lay them out next year, what you'll discover is I'm going to be preaching from all these different sections of the Scripture. And we have some core commitments as a church. We as a staff, we spent some time just evaluating uh, what is it that God's called us to do as a church? What's the, what are the core things that we know we have to address? So just want you to be reminded, we're committed to worship and leading God's people in worshiping. Community, living together in fellowship with each other. Prayer, encouraging and blessing you in your own prayer life. Evangelism, obviously that's connected to missions as well. Taking the gospel to our world. Studying the scripture um, being good stewards of all the things that the Lord has given us. We, we're committed to all of those things. Those are core commitments for us as a church. But over time, this last year, I've spent time with some of the leaders on our staff praying through how do we need to focus our attention and our energy in 2024, knowing that we have all these other things that certainly are required of us. We've landed on three areas of focus, and I want you to, to know what they are as we go into 2024. First one is young adults, young families. One of the burdens that we have right now is how young adults in general across America are becoming separated from churches. The research is just, the, the data just backs that up. Um, and so we're burdened about this next generation of adults in America. So young adults, young families, and I want to ask you to go ahead and start praying with us about how do we best reach young adults and young families. For some of you, um, that's your grandchildren. And I think you would be concerned about your grandchildren hoping they'll stay connected to the church. Am I right about that? For those of you that are concerned about your grandkids, for some of you, it's your kids. You're concerned about your kids. And I want you to know I am as well. For some of you, that's your colleagues. That, that's, that's your world. You know, you are a young adult. And the material that we've studied, the data that we have seen shows us that young adults, young families uh, are becoming more disconnected from organized church life than maybe at any other time. It's very concerning to me because here's what happens to those folks. Some of them were reared in the church and they become de-churched. Now, once those de-church young adults come of age and they start getting married and having children, guess what their children are? Their children are not de-churched. Their children are unchurched. So we've got a whole generation of young adults and young families across our community and our nation that are rearing unchurched children. So we're very concerned about it. And so I'm going to ask you, you might be saying, well, I'm not a young adult, so what role do I play? Well, you play a role because you're part of this church. And we're going to try to figure this out together. And I want to invite you to it. We also are concerned about new people. People that just need to know Jesus. <laughs> you know, we have plenty of people across our community 
that are disconnected in terms of a relationship with a fellowship of believers or even a relationship with God, and we're concerned about that. And so we want to reach new people. We've also coined a term. We call it a ministries. It's actually a term that Barry came up with. And what we mean by that is our church campus, we've renovated our campus here downtown Arlington. And, um, and we have a lot of what we might call amenities but they're not just amenities. We want them to be used in ministry. So we've coined this new term, ministries, And we want to be good stewards of this campus. And so I want to invite you to that conversation. How can you and I participate together to better use our facilities? Are there things that you might be doing in your life right now? Uh, maybe some Bible studies you're a part of. Occasionally, what if you would invite them if you're during the week, or even some Moms groups and dads groups and um, young adults who are having fellowship with each other. Some of y'all are already doing this, but you know, some of you are coming to play pickleball here on our campus. Some of you are coming here for Bible studies. Well, we want you to think about inviting folks to come here to the campus with you because in order for a downtown church to, to find its way in ministry, Sometimes we got to invite people to be a part of it and understand exactly what's available to them on our campus. So we want to be good stewards of our resources that we have here as a church. So, does that make sense to all of y'all? We're, we're looking at 2024. We're, we've got, we're not going to quit doing our ministry to everybody. You know we're going to do that. But in terms of focus, young adults, young families, new people, the ministries. We're also in the middle of preparing a budget for next year. And we've got our staff primarily working with some of our lay leaders have been focused on our budget preparation. And a couple things we feel compelled to do. One of them is to right-size the budget for this post-COVID reality. And the second one is, is to address our priorities in a budget. You know, when you're a church like ours that's been around for a long time and is engaged in all kinds of ministries, if you're not careful, you budget historically. And... It's okay to do that a little bit, but we want to be guided by our priorities, not just our history. So there may be the need to reallocate some things, reduce some things, and make some decisions about right-sizing our budget. So I just want y'all to know all that's happening right now behind the scenes, and you're going to hear more about it as we come into 2024. In fact, um, on January the 14th, that's not this coming Sunday, it's the next Sunday, we're going to have a quarterly business conference that evening. We'll get you more details about it. We're going to meet in the Fellowship Hall and we're going to uh, do some of the business we have to do. But also, I'm going to do just a brief state of the church message that night to talk about where I feel like we are as a church. And I would love for you to be there that night as we have that conversation. Okay? So that's 2024. So let's finish 2023. Okay? We're still in 2023. And the Rangers have still won the World Series in this year. So let's still... I'm just saying, let's just keep that in. And every time I watch Auburn play football, I remind myself that that Rangers won the World Series. <laughs> so grateful um, for that. Um, so, 2023, we're in Advent still. This is the last Sunday. And our theme for Advent has been the incarnation, why does it matter? And that is one segment of a long conversation that started back last January. We ask the question, why does it matter? We've made our way through our eight seasons. We began with, why does anything matter last winter? And then for the Easter season last year, the question, or this past year, why does your story matter? And then for the spring, why does the family matter? And in the summer, we talked about eternity. Why does eternity matter? August, it was the supernatural. Why does the supernatural matter? For the fall, 
question was, why does the church matter? Missions emphasis was, why does religion matter? And now we're finishing up Advent, and the question is, why does the incarnation matter? And can I just pause and say just a brief word about Advent this year? It's been a very meaningful season for us. Um, we've had a lot of fun together. Uh, we've, we've had some fun events that our church has planned and, and uh, provided for us. And I'm so grateful for the staff that's, and the lay leaders who made all that possible. We had a great adventure Sunday a couple of weeks ago. We had donkey rides and a petting zoo. Do y'all know we had about 76 families from the community that are not a part of our church came to that event on our campus that day. Um, so we're grateful to have reached out to this community to a lot of young adults and young families powerful um, presentation musically of the incarnation. A lot of hard work went into that and I'm grateful for it. And again, I would say thank you to Aaron and the rest of our team for making that possible for us. It's been, a, it's been an informational um, season for us. We've learned a lot about the incarnation and I believe it's been inspirational for us. So with all that said, let's look at this final installment in this conversation about the incarnation. I've entitled it The Incredible Humility of the Incarnation. And the text is a familiar one for you if you have your copy of the New Testament. Philippians, the second page of Philippians. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful text from Paul. We believe Paul is in Rome. This is about A.D. 60 or so. Um, he's under house arrest for a couple of years and he's writing a letter to a church that he loves, this church at Philippi. He thanks them. This is a church that has supported his ministry. He tells them, thank you for your financial support for who I am. But in the middle of this letter, he, he pauses to offer some admonition and inspiration uh, that has just made its way into our hearts. And it's this beautiful passage in Philippians 2. We'll begin in verse 5, and let's look at this text. Where Paul writes this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now that particular verse is a little bit hard to put into English because it doesn't actually have a verb in it. And you know, I'm from Alabama, you can do that in Alabama. We don't have to have verbs in all of our sentences. But typically you would have a verb in a sentence. This one here is lacking that, so it's, it's called scholars to to give a little pause to try to figure out exactly what Paul is saying. But then I don't know what um, verses 6 through 11 look like in your, your text. If you were to look at my Bible, they're set apart. They, they look a little differently than the rest of the text. Any of y'all's Bibles look like that? It, it's like this text is kind of standing alone, so to speak, which also is a little intriguing it's not that way in the original manuscripts. And the reason for that is the original manuscripts, you know, they didn't have the, the wealth that we have. You didn't spare pages in those days. They wrote all the way to the end of every manuscript. They didn't even put spaces between the words because they wanted to get as much as they could on these manuscripts. So we don't have that in the original text. This is something that, that New Testament theologians have, have surmised that it feels like this next section kind of stands alone, so to speak. So with that said, look at verse 6. So Paul says this mindset, and he mentions Christ Jesus. Then verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen, right? Let's walk through this text and let's begin, first of all, with an acknowledgement of what we've done already. The incarnation, the conversation we've already had on Sunday mornings. I've shared messages with you about the hope of glory, the hope of the ages, the eternal Son of God, the Word became flesh. We've used Colossians, we've used Isaiah, we've used the Gospel of John to guide us. And so now we're going to close with a final word on the incarnation of the Son of God. And we're going to let Paul chime in, if you will, on his take on the incarnation. And in this text, he just lays out the humility, if you will, of the incarnation. So with that said, let's just look at what Paul shares with us and this incredible insight, this text that's just densely packed theologically. Let me start with this. The idea of co-eternal. And what I mean by that is, is that the Son of God is eternal in his existence as a member of the Trinity. That's where we begin a conversation about the incarnation. We begin with an acknowledgement that the Son of God is the second member of the Trinity. And he is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. If you still have your Bibles open, I want you to look at it with me. Look, look at verse 6 where Paul says, who? Then it says, being in very nature. One of the things that, that Paul does in this text is he uses three Greek words that are found nowhere else in the New Testament, which always makes it a little bit challenging. But here's one of the words, morphe is the Greek word. Now that word, like a lot of Greek words, finds its way into English. When we talk about to morph, you know what I'm talking about? Um, when, um, I know when my kids were younger, they used to watch the, what was that show where it was morphing time? Do you know what I'm talking about? What are they called? The Power Rangers, yeah, it's morphing time. Well, that, that's the word, morph. It comes from morphe in Greek. And it means form or nature. And when you read this, when you see this word in ancient Greek literature, it always refers to deities. And so Paul takes this word that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's found twice here. But it's a reference to the nature of the Son of God. He's, he has the form of God, if you will. He is, he is God eternally. And he is equal with God in fact, that's exactly what this text says. He didn't consider, look at verse 6, equality with God. Once again, consider, he didn't consider is another Greek word that's only found here. It's a little bit hard to put in English. But here's basically what Paul tells us about the Son of God. He has chosen at this moment in history, the moment of the incarnation, to not use his divinity to his advantage. He's, he's made this decision as the Son of God in this grand plan of redemption to no longer use this as an advantage. The eternal divinity of the Son of God, he's eternally begotten, he's uncreated, and yet he now has chosen temporarily to do something. What's happening here is we're trying to take in 
a mysterious truth, the incarnation, and we're limited by language. So Paul's doing his very best to help us understand who the Son of God is as he has revealed himself in Jesus. So first of all, he is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. But then Paul describes what many scholars refer to as the condescension, condescension of the Son of God. Now, sometimes we use that word condescend negatively. It's kind of pejorative. Well, you're being condescending. That's not what the word here means. It's a technical word. And what it means is that the Son of God has willingly descended to earth, <coughs> excuse me, surrendered his position in the Trinity to temporarily live within human limitations. Now, I've chosen my words very carefully here, y'all, because you don't want to be a heretic, particularly if you're in my line of work. <clears throat> Because if you're not careful, you can be heretical talking about the incarnation. And this is one of those places where you want to tread carefully. Um, the Greek word is kenosis when, when Paul talks about how he's emptied himself. Look, look at verse 7. He made himself nothing is how the NIV translates it. So what Paul is basically saying is he's not saying that the Son of God is no longer divine. That's heresy. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is temporarily he has surrendered his position in the Trinity to now take on human flesh and live as a human. Does that make sense? He's still divine. He's not surrendering his divinity. What he's surrendering is his position in the Trinity. And so what did he do? Well, notice what he does. Verse 7, the same Greek word, the very nature, morphe. He's taken on the morphe, the form of a servant. And he's actually been made in human likeness. He's become human. So these disciples who walked with Jesus, they knew that. As a matter of fact, the, the, the controversy around Jesus over history has flipped. Do you know in the first century, if you had met John or, or James or Peter, and if you said to them, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure whether or not I believe that Jesus was really human, they would have looked at you like you had lost your mind. What do you mean you don't believe he was human? We lived with him. We know he was human. The stretch for them was to believe what about Jesus? He's the son of God. That was the stretch for them. You and I, all these years later, we have the opposite problem. It's easy for us to believe he's the son of God. We struggle with his humanity. <laughs> what does that mean that he became human? I mean, come on. He's the son of God. That's a, that's a little hard one for us. Well, the Bible's clear about it. He emptied himself of this position, and then, notice what he did. He took on the nature of a servant. That means that you want to know how low the Son of God is going to descend. It's like becoming a slave almost, is what Paul is saying. He, he surrenders all the rights and privileges that came with his lofty position, and he became a lowly human with all of its limitations. It's a, it's a miraculous thing. But he was human. In fact, let me, just, let me just remind you what John says in 1 John 1. 1 John, not John 1. In 1 John 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. John the apostle says, We heard him, we saw him, we touched him. He was human. And so the testimony is, in the condescension of the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity has now become a human being. That's the miracle of the incarnation. This is not taught in any other world religion. The idea that God would become flesh 
and live among us. This is a unique teaching to Christianity, and it is, it is essential to our redemption. It is essential as a core tenet of Christian teaching. That is that God the Son became a human being and lived among us. And if you want to know how humble the Son of God is, if you want to know exactly how much he loves you, Paul reminds you. Once you notice what he says, look at verse 8. He says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So crucifixion, the humility of the Son of God is on full display on the cross. Praise his name. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible tells us that Jesus prayed three times. Father, if you can take this cup from me, take it. Remember that prayer? In other words, I'm, I'm about to take on the sinfulness of humanity. I'm about to be crucified on a sinner's cross. I'm about to be condemned to die by a Roman governor, by a, a pagan ruler. I'm about to submit myself fully to the forces of evil in this world and darkness. And I'm going to surrender myself willingly on behalf of the whole world. If there's another way to do this, would you take this cup from me? And God said, no. And so if you want to know why I believe fully and completely and absolutely that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, one of the reasons I believe that is because of the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is no other way. Humanity had to be redeemed. And Paul says in Romans 5 verse 19, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. In John, we've read through the Gospel of John this year as a church. In John 11, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not sure what to do with Jesus because Jesus is doing controversial things. He is healing the sick. He's making the, the deaf hear. He's causing the blind to see. And if you want to know how bad it is for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's even raising the dead. That's what he's doing. And so nobody knows what to do about it. And so you read John 11 after Lazarus has been raised from the dead and people are talking about it. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are all meeting together and say, we have to do something. And somebody says, one of the guys says, you know, if we don't do something, the Romans are going to get so mad, they're just going to take us all out. They're just going to take us all out. And then Caiaphas said this. Y'all remember this in John 11 verse 50? Caiaphas said, let's kill him. It's better for one man to die than the whole nation to perish. And John adds to that, Caiaphas had no idea, this is my living Bible, Dennis Wiles paraphrase. John says, Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying because what was about to happen was Jesus was going to die for all of Israel and all of the separated people of God and bring them all together in one family. So he said, Caiaphas doesn't even know he's a prophet. One man is going to die and he's going to die for all of us. And so the crucifixion, that is the humility of the Son of God on full display. How do I know? In other words, it's one thing to say that Jesus thought that he was not going to take advantage of his divinity. 
It's another thing for him, to, it's a concept, it's another thing for him to put it in concrete action, become like one of us, and then submit himself to the great plan of redemption that God had put in place, that there had to be the innocent death of the Lamb of God for the sins of the world to be atoned for so that we could all be forgiven, cleansed, and in a right relationship with God. And he was even willing to do that. It was enough for him to come and show us how to live, but can you imagine he went beyond that and died for us so that we all really could live? Wow, thank you, Jesus. No wonder we celebrate his birth But then I want you to notice what Paul says happens next. Look at verse 9. Therefore, after Paul has described the incarnation. Are y'all still with me? All right, therefore, guess what's happened? What did we sing about earlier in this service? What was it Aaron said? Crown. God has exalted his son to the highest place. Hallelujah. As a matter of fact, look at verse 9. Therefore, God... Once again, another word that's only found here in the New Testament. Exalted him. It's it's a Greek word that begins with the Greek prefix, the Greek prefix huper. We get our prefix hyper. He has hyper exalted him. He has elevated him. Super exalted him. Crowned him, in other words, lifted him up and given him the highest place, verse 9. And not only that, he has given him the name above all names. Jesus is Lord. So the teaching of the incarnation is the incarnation is actually connected to the redemption of humanity. And it is also connected to the exaltation of Jesus himself. And so God in His blessing of the obedience of his son, he has now placed Jesus in the highest place and he's given Jesus the name that is above all other names. That's why whenever someone makes a decision to follow Jesus, what we ask them to declare is Jesus is Lord because that's the declaration of the church. So we we talk about him being co-eternal which is incredible, if you will. And the, condon, the condescension of Jesus all the way to the point of the crucifixion and the crown of glory placed on him, that leads me to what I would call the cosmic confession. I, I love verse 10 and verse 11. Because of the incarnation, because of the great plan of redemption, And because of the super exaltation of Jesus, there is a cosmic confession. And that is Jesus is Lord and all of creation will join in this chorus. Hallelujah. That's exactly what this text says. Look at verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the back of Paul's mind, There's no question, Isaiah 45, where God declares in Isaiah 45 prophetically that one day he will be acknowledged as sovereign. He'll be declared Lord. Now, 
Paul has seen the full sweep of history. He's been given the inspiration and the revelation of the Holy Spirit of God. He's now seen the great plan of redemption play out in front of him. He's met the resurrected Lord. And he now knows that in the future, in history, the victory is secure. Jesus Christ will be declared as sovereign and everyone will acknowledge him and confess him as Lord. And all people, everyone, all creatures everywhere throughout all time and in every geographical place will declare one day Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My encouragement to me and you is let's make sure we do that on this side of the grave, but we're all going to do it on the other side of the grave. But let's do it now. Why would we wait? <laughs> let's go ahead and rehearse. Let's get ready for that heavenly chorus where all of us will join in that bold declaration. Now, with all that said, let me point out one other thing to us this morning, and that is the connection. What is the connection of all this? Because incarnation, redemption, exaltation, all that's tied together. Well, the connection's back in verse five. Have this same attitude of humility within you. What does Paul say in verse five? In your relationships with one another. Be like Jesus, in other words, is what he says. Now, if you'll notice, like I said, verses 6 through 11 are kind of set apart in, in a lot of translations. The reason for that is many scholars believe this is a, an early Christian hymn. It, it has a little bit of, of um, rhythm to it in, in the Greek text, which makes scholars think it has a certain poetic value. Um, you, you can only imagine how much scholarly ink has been spilled on this text. Was this an early hymn that Paul took and adapted? Is this a hymn that Paul wrote? Is it actually a hymn? Is it a hymn there for the ethical connotations? In other words, live like this? Is it, some scholars say, no, it's charismatic, which is the Greek way of saying it's for teaching, it's for instruction. But the point is, it just has a certain beauty to it. And that's why you see it set apart in many translations. The, the translators are trying to tell you, pay attention to this right here. This feels like something the early church embraced as a confessional statement about Jesus. But Paul connects it to your everyday life in verse 5, in my opinion. And Paul says, in your life with each other, follow Jesus. Be like Jesus. Be humble like Jesus. And I would say, if you've not yet made a New Year's resolution... If you hadn't made one yet, I'll offer you one. In your relationships with each other, be like Jesus. That's a pretty good one. <clears throat> Act like Jesus. Be humble before your brothers and sisters, just as the Lord Jesus has been humble before us. So church family, the incarnation, redemption, all of that, the, the redemptive story of God, our salvation, it depends on the incarnation. And the incarnation is inspirational. We're supposed to live a humble life in response to what Jesus has done for us. We will always marvel at this truth that the Word became flesh. You know, years ago, Cindy and I were in Bethlehem. And we'd made our way across the Holy Land in those, on that particular trip. And highlights were everywhere as they always are on a trip like that. But for me personally, the most meaningful time was in Bethlehem. It was a powerfully rich experience for me. We were in the shepherd's field and where we know that 
the angels made the announcement that night about the birth of Jesus. And so we stood on the edge of that field and we read Luke 2 and tried to imagine in our mind, what, wonder what this was like for these shepherds um, hearing this revelation from God through this angelic messenger. And then when you go to inside the city of Bethlehem, the church of the nativity is there. It's an ancient church. Constantine had that church built in 325, so it's, it's been around for a long time. And there are multiple now Christian groups that actually own parts of the church in the nativity. But as you tour the church, one of the things that you do if you'd like to is you go down to the caves underneath the church. And the reason they are significant is because that's where we, we believe Jesus was actually born, in one of those caves. You'll find an altar there to the slaughter of the innocents, all the children in Bethlehem who would lose their lives over the birth of Jesus. You'll also find a little room connected to those caves where Jerome lived when Jerome was trying to translate the Bible into the language of the people, into, into Latin, uh, in the ordinary language. It's called the Vulgate, the ordinary language of the people in those days. Um, Jerome decided, I need to live as close to Jesus as possible. He chose to live in a cave there right next to where we believe Jesus was born. And so we were there that day and um, just standing in that holy place on this earth. And, and so as we were making our way back up to the, the Catholic side, the Roman Catholic side of the church, there's a chapel there that they operate. And there was a Roman Catholic tour group from Ireland there that day. And as Cindy and I were kind of ascending the stairs, we could hear these people singing in English, which was a little different after being in Bethlehem. You're immersed in Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic. But we're hearing this group sing, Oh, come let us adore him in English. And I can't describe to you just the, just the power of that moment for me that there I was standing over, as best we know, the cave where the word became flesh and I was being admonished to adore him. How could I not adore him? <laughs> He's the eternal son of God who chose to empty himself of his position and step out of eternity and robe himself with human flesh and live with all the limitations that you and I live with and show us how to live a perfect life and never make one mistake, never commit one sin, have incredibly challenging circumstances and preach a perfect sermon every time and teach a perfect lesson every single time and respond perfectly to every situation and then fully obedient offers up his life on a cross for my sin and then is gloriously resurrected from the dead, ascended to the Father, exalted by God, and he now has the name above every other name. Jesus is Lord. How can I not adore him? I mean, come on. He's, he's my Savior. He's the Son of God. And we praise his name today. And that's why we as Christians can say fully throated, Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, today we, um, once again, we bow before you and recognizing Lord, just how powerful this truth is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we continue to marvel at the miracle of the Incarnation. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, as we end this series on the Incarnation, as we bring 2023 to a conclusion, that we as your people will have a fuller, richer understanding of what it means that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. Lord, may that truth reverberate through our souls as your people. And may we never lose the majesty and the beauty of it. And may we share it faithfully with our world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as we bring this time of worship to a conclusion and bring this year to a conclusion, I just want to remind you, we've been reading the Gospel of John all year long in various ways through the year. And in John 20, the Apostle John wrote this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we want you to know that's our prayer for you, is that you'll believe in him. If you believe in him, you'll have life in his name. I can't imagine a better way to bring it this year to a conclusion than giving your life to Jesus. <laughs> I can't imagine a better way to start a new year than by giving your life to Jesus. And so if you've never done that, we want to encourage you to do that. You can do that today. You can ask Christ into your life. You can acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. And we would encourage you to do it. Come forward and talk to us about it. If you're joining us online, we'd love to introduce you to Jesus. In fact, if you just want to know more about how to follow Jesus. What does it mean to have life in his name? If you'll just text Jesus to the number that we're gonna give you on the screen, we'd love to visit with you about it and help you understand what it means to follow the Jesus way. That's who we are at this church. And this church is not full of perfect people. That's not who we are. This church is full of people who are following Jesus, the Jesus way. That's best we know how. That's what we're trying to do. And we'd love to invite you to find your way on the Jesus way. If you wanna know more about that, text Jesus to that number. Come forward and share it with us or let us know and we'll do our very best to help you understand how to follow Jesus. But let's stay.